All right. Good morning, everybody. How are you guys doing this morning? Despite a little bit of an unusual start here, I feel like it's going to be a great day. I'm excited about it. If you're out there online, I'm glad that you're joining us. Uh, whether it's the first time or you've been a regular with us, just welcome again. I'm so glad that you're here. Um, so let's get right to the message here. We are in, um, we're in a new, new-ish series. This is week three of our series. It's called Jesus the Servant Messiah. It's going to be a study in the Gospel of Mark. Now, if you've missed any of the, of the previous messages, again, we're in week three now, so one and two, kind of set up the stage for what is really happening, some of the backstory kind of of what's going on. Not that you have to see that, but if you missed any of those, you can go back through our website, catch them directly there, or through YouTube or Facebook, you can go back and catch the previous messages. Might just be a good setup. So I'll give you kind of a brief overview here, because I think it's important that we understand why the Gospels are written. First of all, the reason the, the Gospels are written, and how many Gospels are there? Four. Not all at once. Take turns. Four. There's four Gospels. Four Gospels. And if you read them, you might be tempted to think, like, these are all different. Why? And you'd be right. They are different. They all tell the same story, but from a different viewpoint. That's why there's four. And it's very, very intentional. Some people think, well, it's a mistake because one gospel mentions something and the other one doesn't. Or this one says there were three people. This one says one person. Are are they wrong? Are they in error? No, they're absolutely not in error. They are intentionally written that way. Just like you would any time you wanted to teach a message or spread a message, you'd be aware of who you're preaching to, of who you're talking to. You wouldn't go into the same, you wouldn't go into church and tell the story of the gospel of Jesus, at least I hope you wouldn't, the same way that you would tell somebody who had never known anything about the Lord before. You would hopefully start at a different standpoint and you would have different language that you use. Tell it a different way. Anytime you tell a story to anybody in any situation, you should be aware of who you're talking to and you use the message in such a way that it would have the maximum impact. That's what the four different Gospels are for. So they all have the same idea at heart. That's to preach the salvation message of Jesus, the good news, the gospel of Jesus to the whole world. That's what they're all for. But each one of them was written really with a specific audience in mind. And so you have to go back to message one to see me break down all the different ones. But if we're in Mark, the gospel of Mark really falls in line with the others with its purpose. In fact, Mark chapter 16, 15, by the way, if you don't have your Bible, bring it. Next time, I use a lot of Scripture, but I will always either read it to you or we'll have it on the screen up here, so you don't have to. I use the New American Standard Translation. Yours may be a little bit different, and that's okay. But where it's significant, sometimes translations differ a little bit, and where it makes a difference, I'll be sure and point that out to you, so that you can see it. But let's go back. So Mark 16, chapter 16, the gospel we're in, verse 15 says this, and he said to them, who's the he? It's Jesus in this. So these are the words of Jesus. Go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. That's the point. That's why all four of the gospels were, were written so that that could be preached to all creation, not just a particular audience. Because if you were just writing all this for one particular audience, it'd be easy. 
But this is all creation. All creation covers everybody everywhere. And so to be able to reach them in the most effective way, they're all written a little bit different. So the Gospel of Mark. The Gospel of Mark is written to a group of, of pretty new converts to Christianity in Rome. When it was written, it was written to that audience. And this audience then well, they were experiencing some stuff. They were going through some things in their life. So it was written to converts, as I said. Some of them were Jews who had converted to Christianity. Some of them were polytheistic, meaning they were worshiping the, you know, the Greek and the Roman gods, Zeus, Apollo, Athena, all that. They had more gods than, than, they had plenty of gods. Let's just put it that way. And then some were just a group of, of, pagans. They didn't really particularly have any kind of God. But these people had all heard the message of Jesus Christ, of his resurrection, and had said, yes, I want to follow that person. I want to follow that man. That's a message that I can get behind. The only thing is, they didn't entirely know the message. They knew the power of the resurrection. They knew that. And that sounded great because they were in a place of almost desperation in their lives. Living in Rome, at the time, they were living under Emperor Nero. And I've told you kind of briefly some of the things Nero was doing. You think Christians have it bad now. Nero was burning people at the stake. He was using them to light the city up and putting them on lampposts and burning them to light the city. This was some terrible things going on. And so these people who accepted Christ into their life, their hope, their desire was he's going to come and he's going to wipe out our enemies. He's going to march into that or march with us into that, into that, um, that castle or wherever it is that, that Nero was living. They're going to march right into Rome. They're going to kick butt, take names, drive out Nero, and everything is going to be better. This is what they expected. They expected, okay, Nero has Roman legions. He's got armies. He's got weapons. He's got all the power and so we're being told that this Christ we're supposed to follow has power too. So what's it going to look like? What are we going to do, Jesus? Tell us when we're all going to march and we're going to all storm the palace. When does that happen? That's probably what they were expecting. And yet, the message they got was entirely different. This gospel is actually written to that group of people experiencing that with those kind of hopes and dreams for what this Messiah was going to be. And it's so radically different than what they expected. But that's where the power lies. So let's get into that a little bit. In the Gospel of Mark, again, they all, they all portray Jesus in, from a different character aspect. But in Mark specifically, he's portrayed as the suffering servant Messiah. The suffering servant sent as a sacrifice for our sins. If you're waiting for your own army to march against Rome... That's not exactly what you're hoping for. And it's such a contrast. Mark 10, verse 45 says this, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Again, not what you're hoping for. So how then does this become this magnetic gospel that drew so many people to it? We're going to look at that. And see how this happened. Mark's gospel, in fact, doesn't stress the power and the, the lightning bolt and the creation and, and causing raging seas to calm. 
doesn't get into that so much. What Mark's gospel really stresses is, is the deeds here on earth, the inner strength, the inner determination that Jesus had. And that strength, that determination was able to overcome the forces of evil. That's the promise of the gospel of Mark. And again, these people are living in imperial Rome. It's an entirely different situation. But this gospel doesn't emphasize the deity. Deity just means the, the godness, the God aspect. It doesn't emphasize lightning bolts hurling and the earth tearing open and all these things that God can do. It represents and, and emphasizes the humanity of Jesus and how by serving one another with humility and love, evil can be overcome. All right, remember, I want you to remember this. These people are expecting legions or some sort of an army or something to rise up and go take on Rome, and they're being told, here's how you overcome that. You serve in love and humility. Radical message for those days, just as it is now. How many people look at the things that are going on in the world, and your response, my response is, if we can just raise up enough people that are like-minded like us and who know what truth is, and we can march on the Capitol in massive numbers, and they can't resist us, and we'll be able to overpower and overcome evil. We fall into that today. And yet the point of this gospel is, no, no, no. Serve in love and humility, and that's what we'll overcome. So let's get into this. So think about this, and I talked about this in previous weeks. Huge crowds, huge crowds. It says everyone, Scripture says everyone, from Jerusalem and all of Judea, all came to this remote spot in the countryside on the banks of the Jordan River to watch John the Baptist baptize people. And he was baptizing them. He was preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. If you lived in that environment, that would hardly be the most magnetic reason to travel 20 miles at least across desert, some even 90, 100 miles, that they traveled on foot mostly to come and hear this message of repentance and baptism for the forgiveness of sins. And yet it was somehow so magnetic. It wasn't a feel-good message. It wasn't a, yeah, let's gather together and then march on the Capitol. It wasn't that. So how did John the Baptist get all these crowds to see the value of repentance for the forgiveness of sin? How did he get them all to see that in this context? Number one, he served in humility and minimized himself and pointed everyone to Jesus. It's not about me. It's not about what I'm doing. It's about pointing everyone to Jesus. He didn't judge their past, but what he did do is he proclaimed hope for their future. And forgiveness, the for, baptism for the forgiveness of sins, people today, then, carry so much baggage that is our sinful past. And we carry that with us, and it weighs us down and keeps us from so much of what God has. And what he's saying there is repent, and you're forgiven. And we can walk free of that. That was the attractive message that drew people to him from all over the place. They wanted to hear that so much. But here's the thing as we go into this chapter then, those weren't the only people who were hearing this message. Those weren't the only people who traveled all that way to see what John the Baptist had to say, what he was preaching. Now we're going to pull some things. 
the Gospel of Mark is very straightforward. There's not a lot of fluff and not a lot of surrounding things uh, to, to any situation. He's very straightforward and very sure. It's actually the shortest Gospel. But we're going to pull things in from the other ones, from Matthew, from Luke, from John, and we're going to use them to kind of illuminate a little bit what's going on here. So these crowds, in these crowds, these crowds of people, hordes, I would call them, that came in to listen to this message and to be baptized and to witness what was going on were this other group. Matthew chapter 3, verses 7 through 9 say, But when he, and the he is being John the Baptist, when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism. He said to them, You offspring of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, produce fruit consistent with repentance, and do not assume that you can say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Think about this. Pharisees and Sadducees, they were, they were the elite of that area, the elite of Israel, of of Jerusalem. They were held up to the highest standards, and they tried to live their life by that highest standards. In fact, that was their their whole goal in every moment of life was to try and adhere to the law. They didn't do it so well. They made a lot of mistakes, but here's the thing. They thought that just because they knew they were God's chosen people, we are God's covenant chosen people, and therefore... Whatever we say has to be right because God chose us. And so they did everything in the least loving way possible. It was just laying down the law and live like this or else. And they thought the fact that they were God's chosen would override everything. And what John the Baptist is telling him is, "Uh uh-uh, you think just because you're chosen by God that you can live your life the way you want? God could raise up more from these rocks here. He doesn't need you. If you're not going to carry the banner of Jesus and the Lord the right way, he can raise up these rocks to replace you. That's what they're being told. Now, that's great for, for rebuking those Pharisees and Sadducees, but think about if you're someone on the sideline, you're one of the regular folk, and you're watching this happen. You're going, what chance do we have then? If these guys who are like our elite, they're like, They live their whole life trying to be righteous. What chance do we have? And so the Gospel of Luke actually records that they start start murmuring and asking questions among themselves like, what, how are we going to attain any of this if those guys are a brood of vipers? They just got slammed down. What can we do? So John, the Baptist, he replies back, and this is recorded in Luke 3. But so they're saying, what chance do we have if those guys can't do it? And here's what he says. He says, the one who has two tunics, which is a a robe that you wear, is to share with the one who has none. And the one who has food is to do likewise. To the tax collectors, he said, collect no more than what you have been ordered to. To the soldiers, he said, do not extort money from anyone, nor harass anyone, and be content with your wages. So think about what's happening here. The Pharisees and Sadducees are living their life trying to be as righteous as possible. And his answer to them, what chance do you, what chance do you have? Here's your chance, serve. Here's your chance, share what you have. Here's what your chance, don't take more than you're entitled to. These people had become selfish 
and prideful and greedy. The tax collectors would go out and extort not only the money they were supposed to collect, but as much as they could. Soldiers would routinely rough up people and just seize and just take their things, take their money, steal from people. That's, that was a normal part of their life then. And John is saying, just stop doing that. Stop being greedy. Stop being selfish and prideful. This gospel message that he's preaching is one of service and humility and ultimately of self-denial. That's actually the very message that Jesus Christ was to live out on earth. And John is saying, just stop trying to achieve righteousness. Stop trying to get what you think you have coming to you and just serve. Be humble. So into that scene, picture this is all going on, okay? John the Baptist is rebuking the Pharisees. People are murmuring what's going on. Meanwhile, there's still hordes trying to be baptized, listening to this message. And into that picture walks a single 30-year-old man, okay, wearing very simple and humble clothing. He walks in by himself, traveling alone. Mark 1.9 says this, In those days... Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Again, Mark's, Mark's um, ability to be very brief with his words. That's his entire description of Jesus traveling in. We have information from other scriptures to talk about more, but think about this. Jesus was just a simple carpenter living, living at home with his mom. 30-year-old man living at home with his mom in Nazareth trying to carry on the family business um, history tells us and tradition is that his father, Joseph, actually died sometime when Jesus was a teenager. We don't know exactly when, but Jesus was living with his mom in Nazareth, about 62 miles away, by the way, just carrying on, just carrying on business. Now, this is the first time that we saw him since he was 12. Remember the last time any scripture documents where Jesus was, was all the way back when he was 12, when his parents, Mary and Joseph, went to Jerusalem for the Passover. And remember they leave and they leave Jesus behind, like, oh no, one of those home alone moments. They come back and find Jesus preaching in the, in the temple. But that's the last we see of Jesus. Then, then there's this long period of time. Anybody know what Jesus was doing between 12 and 30? Anybody know? Scripture says this, Luke 2.52, And Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. He just carried on. He carried on as head of the household, of, of being, the, being the, the man of the house, the oldest of the children of, of his mother, and just carrying on the family business, doing the things that he had to do. And this is what was going on. No pomp and circumstance, no Billboards, this is the home of the future Messiah. Nobody was selling t-shirts. <clears throat> so into this scene, this lone man, Jesus, walks up to John the Baptist to be baptized in the Jordan for repentance and forgiveness of sins. Now, question, does John the Baptist immediately recognize Jesus and go, hey, everybody, you all stand aside. Here's, here comes Jesus. He gets to go first. Is that how that happened? It's not. It's not a trick question, but it's not how it happened. We look at the Gospel of John to kind of describe the scene here. John chapter 1, verse 29 and 30. The next day, so this is day two of the baptisms at the Jordan. 
The next day, he saw Jesus coming to him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he in behalf of whom I said, After me is coming a man who has proved to be my superior because he existed before me. So he announces, we see this, that he announces Jesus. says, But here's the next, the very next verse, verse 31. And I did not recognize him, but so that he would be revealed to Israel, I came baptizing in water. So he's, he's admitting to, like, I didn't recognize him. Like, he knew he was the Messiah, and he recognized that, but did he recognize that this is his cousin Jesus? Remember, they're cousins. Mary and Elizabeth were sisters. So they're cousins. You'd think he would at least, oh, here comes cousin Jesus. But he doesn't recognize him as cousin Jesus. He recognizes him as the Messiah, the Lamb of God. And he proclaims that right up front. Now, why, though, did John not recognize Jesus? Anybody ever try and reconcile that? Why did John not reconcile Jesus? Let's look at John's life leading up to this. Scripture tells us that John the Baptist probably lived his life in the desert, lived a solitary life. Luke 180 says, Now the child, talking about John the Baptist at this point, now the child grew and was becoming strong in spirit, and he lived in the deserts until the day of his public appearance to Israel. So in the Dead Sea region, Dead Sea region of Israel, there's an area uh, there's an area called Qumran, which is where the Dead Sea Scrolls were located or were discovered. But there's, there was a community, kind of a sect of Jews called the Essenes. And the Essenes were very, very orthodox and strict in their um, almost, a, almost a monk-like existence, right? They gave up any, any trappings of wealth or, or opulence, anything like that. Some people use the term ascetics which is so they were celibate, they were very simple, lived a simple lifestyle, and they lived a life of prayer. Constant prayer is what the Ascends did. This is what John the Baptist was. This is how he grew up as a child. They were actually the first to perform baptism as we know it. And in fact, it was a daily ritual. They would get up, the Essenes would get up every morning and baptize. And they were the first to really connect it with not a not a physical transformation, cleansing, but as repentance. They were the first to kind of connect that. By the way, John, the word Baptist, how does John the Baptist get his name, the Baptist? Well, the word, the word baptize means literally, it means to dip. So really, we could call him John the Dipper. It doesn't have the same ring to it, right? John the Baptist sounds better, but that's where that came from. <clears throat> so... How then did John the Baptist know who Jesus was? How did he know? To answer that, let's go back even a little bit farther to John the Baptist's father, his father Zechariah. His father Zechariah, his mother Elizabeth, but the angel Gabriel actually meets Zechariah and talks to him. And he says this, this is Luke 1.15. For he will be great, this is the angel Gabriel speaking this to Zechariah. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and he will drink no wine or liquor, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit while still in his mother's womb. So he's, Gabriel is telling him he's, he's going to live this, this lifestyle, this monastic lifestyle. So that's why he ended up with the Essenes. We don't know if, he, if they shipped him off to boarding school with them or, or how that all went down. 
But we do know this, he was filled with the Holy Spirit while still in his mother's womb. That's important because remember what happens next. Zechariah and Elizabeth, pregnant with with baby John, are visited by her sister, Mary. Mary's also pregnant. Mary's pregnant with Jesus. Anybody remember what that interaction looked like, what happened when they met? It's so cool. Luke 141, when Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leapt in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. So among just, just hearing the voice, the Spirit in John, baby John in, in the womb, recognized the Holy Spirit in Jesus and leapt. So that's how John the Baptist was filled with the Holy Spirit, and that enabled him to recognize Jesus, the Spirit in Jesus as he approached so that's how, that's how he was able to recognize him, even though he didn't immediately recognize him as his cousin. I love that because hidden in plain sight throughout the Bible, you just have to look at it. There are all sorts of little events, little nuggets here and there that illustrate how omniscient God is. Omniscient means all-knowing. So he was able to know all the way back before John the Baptist was ever born, this meeting between John the Baptist and Jesus would happen at the Jordan River. And in order for John the Baptist to recognize who Jesus was and announce this is the one you've been heralding his arrival, he had to have the Spirit in him to make that recognition. So the Spirit was planted in John. I love that. So here, again, back to, the, back to the side of the Jordan River, John the Baptist is, is baptizing, recognizes who Jesus was, and his first thing is, I'm going to switch places. I'm not going to baptize you. You should be baptizing me. John knew that repentance for the forgiveness of sins is not something that Jesus Christ needed. So he tries to switch. And says, you baptize me. Matthew 3.14 records it. But John tried to prevent him, saying, I have the need to be baptized by you, and yet you're coming to me? So he's trying to, like, how does this work? But Jesus was baptized to fulfill his mission here on earth. There are so many things that Jesus did and accomplished during his ministry that were to fulfill his mission. This one specifically was to do the will of his Father and identify with sinful man, with sinful mankind. Be baptized for the repentance of sins. That's what they're being called to do. Hebrews 4.15 even says this, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things just as we are yet without sin. Jesus didn't have sin that he needed to repent of, but he was being baptized so that he could identify with humans. Jesus didn't have to be baptized, and he certainly didn't have to die on a cross in our place. He did both things to express his his oneness with fallen man. And then, secondly, to fulfill the Levitical law requirement, you can read Leviticus 21, it it outlays in the law how a high priest is to be anointed and how he is to be consecrated and to be cleansed with this ritual cleansing. And so this is an example of all those things coming in one event here. So Jesus, bottom line, declines the swap. He says, no, 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 you, you go ahead and baptize me because he knows what's coming next. Mark chapter 1, verses 10 and 11. 
says this, and immediately coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens opening and the spirit like a dove descending upon him and a voice came from the heavens. You are my beloved son. In you, I am well pleased. If that's not a crazy vision, imagine you're standing there and all this happens. I think there's more there we need to dig into a little bit. Would you agree? I'm just going to say, yes, you agree. In these, let's look at these verses a little bit closer. First of all, in these two verses, first thing we see that jumps out to me anyway is that we see all three persons of the Godhead. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, we see them all represented in that one little interaction. Jesus, the Son, coming up out of the water, the Spirit of God descending upon him, and the voice of the Father declaring his pleasure with the Son. We see all three right there. Let's look even a little bit further. I told you at the beginning, sometimes word translations make a difference. This is one where I think looking a little bit more at the translation, in this case, it's New Testament, so it'll be Greek. If it's in the Old Testament, chances are it's going to be Hebrew. But let's look at it a little bit further because I think it sheds some light on what's happening here. Let's look at that, at that phrase, he saw the heavens opening. Now, I picture that in my mind just as the clouds parted. I, nothing super dramatic. The word, though, the word heaven's opening actually translates as, from a Greek word, and that Greek word is schizo. Yes, the schizo that you know of. The definition is to tear in two or to rend or to split. That's what that word means. If it were just to open, like open a door, that word would have been anoigo. It's, it's an entirely different word. The picture here is of it literally being torn, the heavens being torn open. The prophet Isaiah, actually, six, almost 700 years prior to this event, actually begged God for this moment. Isaiah 64.1, he says, Oh, that you would tear open the heavens and come down, that the mountains would quake at your presence. He's just praying for and begging for the presence of God to return, and tearing open of the heavens was the first step of that. And in the Hebrew temple, if you know anything about the Hebrew culture, and I've taught it before, the temple was divided. There was one section called the Holy of Holies, and it was closed off by a, by a veil, by a curtain. And we see that that, that that veil, when Jesus gives up his life on the cross, at that moment, that temple veil is torn. And it's all an illustration of God no longer being separated from his people. This moment when the clouds, when the sky and the heavens literally tear open, that is, I have sent my son to be among you, and I have put my spirit in him, and he will be God among you, no longer separated by a veil. It's a great vision to me. The next line, the spirit like a dove descending upon him. Again, translation matters a lot. Let's look at this. The word upon, descending upon him. I picture a dove coming down, landing on Jesus' shoulder, right? The dove is, is just sitting on his shoulder. That's not how Scripture says it happened. The word upon, depending, descending upon him, is the Greek word ice, E-I-S, but it's pronounced ice. And what it really means is to move into or to, to form a complete union by entering into. So it's saying the spirit, like a dove, literally entered into him. 
I have no idea what that really looked like if you were sitting there, but it had to be awesome. And it wasn't just landing on his shoulder because the Greek word for upon or on is a different word. It is epi, like epidermis, like skin. It's that root. And so if it would have meant it just landed on his shoulder, it would have used that word. But it says it entered into him. Now that is the expectation and the promise to all who believe in Christ Jesus, that the Holy Spirit enters into you, is literally deposited in you. We see that happening right here in a visible way. Those people would have seen that happening. I can't even imagine what it would have looked like. But it wasn't a figurative dove, like a kind of a dove-shaped sort of wispy cloud that entered. It wasn't that. Scripture actually tells us in Luke 3.22, and the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, and you I am well pleased. Spirit like a dove. So it literally looked in bodily form like a dove, which was a very common temple sacrifice in those days. The imagery of a dove would not have escaped the people there. It was a temple sacrifice. People that would come in from all over parts of Israel and beyond would come to the temple to offer sacrifice. They couldn't bring a lamb or livestock with them to sacrifice. So what they would do is they would go into Jerusalem and they would just buy a dove. And that would be a common sacrifice. In fact, that's what was going on when Jesus goes into the temple and and upturns over all the tables and kicks out the Money changers, they were selling doves for sacrifice at an incredible profit, extreme profit, taking advantage of people. But that idea of a dove being used as a sacrifice was very common, known for its passivity, gentleness. That imagery would not have escaped them. And even more so than that, Noah's dove. Noah's dove at the end of the flood when Noah sends out the dove trying to find if there's any land left and eventually one dove does come back with a branch signifying finally peace. It's a symbol at that point that Noah's dove became a symbol of God's peace after a time of of judgment. Then he goes on and says, you are my beloved son. In you I am well pleased. That's a voice from the heavens coming down. Now there's some, some confusion or argument. Was, is this just a voice that Jesus heard or just a voice that John the Baptist heard? It was for everybody. Remember, this was an introduction to the world of Jesus Christ in the beginning of his ministry. It was not just for those two. All of them heard this voice. This is my beloved son, in you I am well pleased. And there's no more powerful phrase that a father can speak over a child than to say, I love you and I am well pleased with you. This is what's happening. Even Jesus Christ, knowing who he is, needed that assurance from his father. Because what he was about to go through was far from anything that looked like what the son of God would go through. And he knew it. And he needed that assurance that he was in the right place, doing the right thing. That phrase, by the way, is a combining of two different Old Testament Scripture promises. One is a messianic blessing of the line of David. And the other one is the blessing of a servant. Psalm 2, verses 7 and 8 says, I will announce the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have fathered you. 
Ask it of me, and I will certainly give the nations as your inheritance and the ends of the earth as your possessions. That's the Davidic line messianic blessing that was coming down. And then the servant part, Isaiah 42.1. Behold my servant who I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. So it's a combination of those two things spoken by God right there in that moment that indicate to the world and to Christ that his his way to that kingly glory is to serve and will be the suffering servant. So there's a lot of debate about the different things that this baptism scene means, but they all kind of whatever... Whatever your, your viewpoint of it, it really comes down to this. It was, it was several things. One, it was his, his identification on earth with sinners. He was about to be their substitute, so he had to identify with them. The other one was an act of obedience to the Father. This is how it worked in order to fulfill the requirements of the law. The high priest, which Jesus is called time and again in Scripture, had to be anointed, had to be publicly cleansed in that, in that way. And so it was an act of obedience. It was an introduction of himself as the Messiah of Israel to those around. Remember it said all of Jerusalem and all of Judea came. So this was a huge crowd that was seeing this is Jesus. And it was also, last but not least, just a picture of his forthcoming death and resurrection. The scene here, what we look at now, is a direct parallel to the ministry of Jesus. So think about this. He comes in humble, humble beginnings. He didn't ride in on a horse. He didn't take a private jet. He didn't do anything. He walked himself 62 miles from Nazareth. Do you know what you would look like after you walked 62 miles across the desert and across those things? You'd be dirty. You'd probably be bloody and scraped up from different falls, you would certainly not smell like a rose. Humble, humble beginnings. He doesn't arrive with fanfare. The clouds don't open in part and say, hey, everybody, turn and look. Here comes my son. Let him go to the front of the line. John the Baptist himself is a very picture of humility. And he doesn't say, yeah, you're right. I'm Jesus. I'll baptize you. He says, no, no, you baptize me. It's the very picture of humility. And then immediately following that comes Jesus being exalted. It's the very picture, and it's taught again and again in Scripture. Matthew 23, 12 is one of the most well-known. Whoever exalts himself shall be humbled, and whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. Jesus came in the beginning. This is the launch pad of his ministry here on earth. And he came in as humble as you could possibly be. And God himself exalts him before the world. This is my son. Church, to be Christ-like, to be Christ-like is first and foremost to love. It's to love and it's to serve. There's nothing in Scripture that says to be Christ-like is to be right and make sure everybody knows that you're right. There's nothing in Scripture that says that. Jesus loved and served, and he did so from a place of assurance that he is in the Father's will, and the Father loves him. And so many times, 
hear me now, I see a lot of Christians living their life like they've got something to prove. They live their life like if I could just prove how right I am, whether it's over politics or vaccines or scripture or homeschooling or I don't care what the thing is, you feel like you've got to prove that you're right and somehow that will prove your righteousness. Church, that is not the gospel message. That trumpeting your righteousness from the mountaintops or whatever social media platform you have is not what makes you a follower of Christ. It is not the magnetic gospel message of Jesus. In the midst of a storm, what caused more attention than Jesus laying down and taking a nap in the boat? What causes more attention, what gathers more attention to the gospel message of Jesus today than just serving in love and humility? Not finding a bigger, better platform and a louder megaphone and more people to surround you to echo the same political or or viewpoints that you have. That is not what draws people to Christ. Remember, the Apostle Paul will talk later, the fruits of the Spirit. I've taught about this before. If you're a Christian, you've heard about the fruits of the Spirit. But just think about this. Peace, love, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control. Now, look at how you live your life. I'm not here to judge anybody. I'm asking you to judge yourself and to look at your life. Does your life reflect those fruits in operation? Or is it righteousness? self-righteousness. If it's not, if those fruits are, if somebody wouldn't look at your life, say you played a movie of the last couple days of your life in front of of a crowd, if they didn't use those words to describe you and it was in fact something else, now you have a choice to make. The choice is this and it's only yours to make. The thing about the gospel is it's your choice to grab a hold of it and to align with it and to live it in your life or to say, eh, I'll live it on Sundays. Are you of this world? Are you more concerned with this blink of an eye that our life on this earth is? Or are you more concerned with your eternity and the eternity of those that we are called to share the gospel message with? Because life on this earth, I don't care what your, your political burning desire is right now. There's so much out there to rail against in the world. There's no end to those things. But regardless of who wins, who's in control, who defrauded this and who's lying about that, regardless of all that, it's a blink in the eye. And eternity is what matters. Are we drawing people into that eternal life of Christ by our actions or not? Are you of this world Or do you belong to a higher calling? Let's pray. Lord, we just thank you so much that you have your word given to us. Your written word and your word written on our hearts, Lord, to help us navigate this world that comes our way. And Lord, I I repent of anything that I do that does not bring you glory. I repent of any word, any action, any thought that I have that does not bring glory to you and that does not draw people to your son, Jesus. So, Lord, help me to be the light. Help me 
to live my life from a place of knowing that you love me, knowing that you are pleased with me, knowing that you love me enough to send your son to die for me, and not from a place of striving to prove my own righteousness. Because, Father, there was only one person who could ever do that without sinning, and that's not me. Father, help me. Help me to live my life knowing that I bring you joy. And if you're in this room right now listening to my voice and you're saying, I don't know for sure that God would say, I have joy over you. Then that's something that we need to look at. Father, if there's anybody in here who can't bring themselves to believe that they bring you joy, that they are your beloved, Lord, show them why that is. Is there a lie that they're believing about why they aren't worthy of your love? Is there a lie that we're believing about why why the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross was not enough for me? Father, help us to live our life from your love, from a place of knowing who we are. Thank you for who we are to you. Thank you for making yourself known to us. And we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.